Hi, Sarah Heffner. Hi, Nancy Rommelman. You look very pretty today. And my little, uh, my little um, wrap dress in with dangling cherries on it. And a plunging neckline, but I, I wasn't going to mention. <laughs> but who, who's noticing? Who's noticing? Um, so, it's, yeah, we, what were you saying about the wrap dress? Well, first of all, I'm just a huge fan of wrap dresses. I wear them all the time. Uh, but I am a woman of, look, I'm stacked. You are. These days I've been, I'm sub-stacked. But, <laughs> but I'm also... I'm gonna write an I'm gonna write an essay for us called Substacked. It's gonna be about having big boobs. No, see, you're stacked. I'm substacked. You are substacked. <laughs> so I have the big boobs, and yeah. I've had them since. I mean, from like an alarmingly young age. This is just like the inheritance of like my my Minnesota farm girl grandmothers that just all had like short legs and giant knockers. Yeah, and so I saw a picture this morning on Twitter. It was so wild. It was of Kyle Rittenhouse okay. and Laura Logan. Kyle Rittenhouse yeah. is the guy. I, I know who he is. I wrote. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I wrote an op-ed about him uh, in for the times when he was uh, sentenced slash not sentenced. Yeah. And you know, he's like, I don't know, 22 years old. And yeah. he was at some event with Laura Logan and I had to go look up. I was like, do I think, is Laura Logan who I think she is? Because she's the, you know, former 60 Minutes uh, journalist who's kind of gone a little, like, coloring outside the lines. Uh, she yeah. had a wrap dress on or a, a plunging neckline. She had enormous cleavage. And the picture is like, it kind of looks like a high, a kid at high school prom with Pam Anderson or something like that. Yeah, it's like the, the or like the 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 beautiful stripper they hire at the bar mitzvah. Yeah, that's actually that's what it looks like. <laughs> and I was looking at the tweets, the Twitter response, and I find this a little bit like okay, I'm gonna say it is the cleavage is eye popping, but as a woman of like really large cleavage that often doesn't know how much cleavage I'm showing when when I'm taking pictures, like I'll get pictures back and be like, holy crap, I look like an adult film star and I yeah. didn't know it I was really uncomfortable with the way people were talking especially women I have to say were talking about Laura Logan they were like "Ooh, gross this is disgusting right guys like boobs I like boobs but this is too much and it, it was it was very surprising to me how people felt you know at a time when we're so careful about body shaming there was just this really quick pylon around this woman that had you know, voluptuous tatas, and you know, and the assumption was that she had got them done. I have no idea. I can tell you that when I gain and lose weight, I mean, I go up cup sizes. That's that's the first. Can like, I just massively make a, an interjection? The idea that women don't body shame is is completely Insane. it's completely absurd. It's like the first thing, like you walk in and just I don't know if it's your DNA or how you're acculturated. You're I have no idea. This you way. clock you clock people. And you know, I don't know why we do so. I I'm gonna say we don't do it. I mean, maybe when we're like 13 and kind of catty and insecure, we do it for reasons like that. But maybe like when we're grownups, it's information we sort of just need. Like, okay, like I understand that this person can like move quickly through the world or can't move quickly through the world. Or maybe this person, I, I register something about their health or something about their, who knows? But you know what? The reason they're probably saying this to Laura Logan 
um, who I don't know very much about, but I know she's kind of gone quite, um, she's become like a flashpoint kind of person, right? Maybe yeah. she's saying pr- provocative things to say provocative things. And then everybody, you know, the tribe's like, yay or boo. Um, you know, they don't like her. And so they're going to feel justified in saying something nasty about her. This is, this is the way people act. It's, it's so small, but you know, that's what they do. Yeah. And I also just want to say that there were a lot of people that were like, damn, she's slamming. And like this, you know, like it wasn't just body shaming. I think that, you know, big boobs are an interesting flashpoint as well. Um, because guys, there's a known thing that guys do tend to like them. But then because of that, because it's such a old cliche that guys like big knockers, there's a big pushback to them. Um, I- and there's a lot of guys like when I was in college, it was the 90s. And a lot of the guys I knew, like dated the Substack. They well, really liked women with that androgynous look. And that's why I was thinking about getting a breast reduction, which I never did. And I'm glad because now I love my voluptuous tatas. <laughs> I am going to counter that it's not that they that anybody loves um, big boobs. It's just people love boobs. And there is a reason why you love boobs. Boobs are unbelievable. I can't believe if, I can't remember if I told this story or not early on in one of our episodes, but years ago I reviewed a book uh, called Breasts and it was all about like breasts and like what they can do and, and, and the different, and, and Nancy, history, but did wait, you know what? that breasts make milk? I did. So no, let me tell you something about how unbelievable breasts are. And I can attest to this as someone who has nursed a baby. So um, when you are, when you give birth or right before you give birth, not for everybody. I will say for some people, including myself, your nipples turn really dark. They get super dark. Well, why Why is that? Oh, because the baby doesn't have good eyesight and the baby can now what? find the breast. Okay. The hi. Fuck. What the fuck? Hello. No, breasts are amazing things. There's a picture and maybe we'll post it here uh, in, the, uh, in the notes of uh, Blondie, of Debbie Harry back in, uh, I guess, like maybe it's late 70s. She's wearing this white a dress and she's got no bra on and she's looking at the camera and her boobs. If you were an alien coming oh. down from Mars, you would be like, okay, so the thing where I have to land on this picture are those two little things poking out at me. They are, boobs are, will I not be picture. denied. They won't I'm, be denied. I know and, this picture. There's also a similar picture of Christy Brinkley in a God, mesh that's a name, name from the past. swimsuit or like tunic of some kind no it's a swimsuit and a friend of mine sent it to me because it was like the Farrah Fawcett poster from his youth you know yeah 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 Farrah is like 77 and this is like 81 or 83 or something like that and I just can't even imagine being a kid and like going around and seeing that photo everywhere it's so you just have a boner all the time it it gives me a boner and i don't even have that part (laughs) so i heard a lady boner a joke once that says uh the first time like a five-year-old boy sees sees like breast he's like boobies the five thousandth time a man sees breast he's like boobies it's just they never get old there i've had a couple guys this is now we're getting into like only fans territory but like I've had <laughs> this a couple is the guys boob episode that got drunk or were just being really silly and wanted to, to motorboat motorboat do you know what that is okay again i don't because i am going to be so you know how many people have made fun of me for my, my not knowing the first expression that you gave to me what, like, were, what was that it was queef 
I didn't I didn't know what it was. I guess and then they're like, what else didn't you know? I'm like, keg stand. Okay. What's keg motor stand? What's motor boating? I don't know what it is. What do you think it is? Um okay. it's a sexual term. What would motor boating be? Okay, the first thing that came to <laughs> So bad. I was like, maybe like if you push your boobs together and they they poke at them. With okay, that's really a, close. A part so of their what body is, is I'm going to show you. Okay, <laughs> okay. So you I'm, go like I'm that. Seeing, I'm seeing. And her they push put their they put their face in there and they go. Oh, oh their face. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I was and they make a motorboat sound. Okay. I've never, I see, I would not, I don't think you could do that to me. I am not endowed in that way. So um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get, they'd have to just do like a little dog paddle. They wouldn't, they wouldn't really get very the, Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. They're like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a what, do you, hey. what do you call it? Push boat? What do you, what do you call those? Paddle Paddle boat. It's a paddle, paddle boat. boat. Paddle boat. You, you can um, paddle boat. You know, the men that I've like loved and had serious relationships with, n- none of them has ever done that. I, I think it makes me feel like my body is a joke. Or my body is a receptacle of some kind. It doesn't, it's just I don't a, like it. It's a toy for their pleasure. It's a toy for their pleasure. But, well, I like that. I mean, I mean hold on. And what's hold wrong on. with that? Before, before I go <laughs> negative on that, um, no, I, I I, don't think any, but, but I've had a couple of like friends that I was sexual with that were like, can I just try this? And I was like, yeah, whatever, just do it. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, I just, I want to let them take it off their bucket list. (laughs) The little 20 somethings are Mm. love to do that. Mm. So, um, I can't, there's like just so many things I wanted to talk with you about. Oh my God. Oh my God. Do you want to talk about what this podcast is? So the name of this podcast, which I'm going to get right this time is called smoke them. If you got them. With Nancy oh. Rommelman and Sarah Heppela. Um, uh, this podcast is about what? We're, 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 we're talking about what's going on in the culture now? Is that what we're what's doing? What's burning yeah. through the culture what's, right what's, now? See, I, can't, I got the name right. I didn't get the tagline right. But that's okay. This we'll is a learning process. Yeah, it is. Right. right we're, we're, we're basically getting – we're putting on our makeup in public. I think that's how that goes. Yeah. So um, – I, there's a lot of things. Obviously, there's some uh, Roe v. Wade stuff going on. But I thought just before, a little. before we got to that, I would just I just want to um, catch up a tiny bit on a story that I don't know if anybody else is fascinated by it. But we talked about it last time a little bit. Was the, uh, the Nancy's uh, gonna Nancy's gonna usurp the Roe v. Wade story with yeah, the story of Vicky? <laughs> and I know it. I know what you're gonna do. Okay, so there was a prison break. It wasn't really prison break. A, a corrections officer last Friday, so a week ago tomorrow. Um, walked out of a Tennessee prison. Her name was Vicki White. She's in her mid or late 50s with a prisoner named Casey White, who's, I think, 39. And he was in jail for 75 years. He was actually going to go up against the death penalty, I think, next month. She said he had a mental health evaluation thing down at the courthouse. She was going to drive him down there. They There's pictures of them leaving, you know, security cameras very calmly. She opens the door. He gets in the car. Well, that was the last they saw them. And, of course, you know, initially it's like, well, oh, she was a model. She'd been working for us for 20 years. She just put in her retirement. It was her last day. And she said she, she was, was a model. She was a model employee, mo- by the way, not employee. a model. like Not yeah. a model. No. She was a model I, employee. Model employee. And she was not going to come back that day after she dropped him off because she had a medical appointment. So they weren't expecting her back. But she was all, you know, hearts and flowers. Great. Well, she's gone. And then very, very quickly, I guess when they saw the uh, video or whatever, 
they realized that, you know, she was she was part of this break. I mean, for a bit, they were like, well, maybe once they got in the car, he could have overpowered her. He's six foot nine. She's a rather small person. Um, but it's now come out. It's pretty conclusive that they dipped together. Why? What are the other the other clues? Well, she had not only put it in for retirement, it was her last day, but she'd sold her house oh, wow. and she'd bought a new car. So she's they're on the run. They haven't caught them yet. I haven't actually checked the news today, but I think I would have seen if they had. However, so someone on Twitter yesterday um very nicely said, you know, Nancy, this is where I live, this area in Tennessee. I've got some stuff I can see send you. And he sent me basically what this guy had done, why he was in prison. And I'm just going to very quickly from memory tell you what those things were. I think it was 2012. He broke into his ex-girlfriend's house. He held her and her roommates at gunpoint. She, Her dog attacked him or the roommate's dog. The girlfriend was able to get away, go to a neighbor's house. Uh, the dog attacked the guy, Casey White. He shot and killed the dog. The, the roommate's escaped out of a bathroom window and called 911. He then fled. He um he robbed a guy of his car. Then he held up another oh and did he shoot him? No. He held up another woman at a rest stop at a welcome rest stop, shot her, took her car, engaged in a high-speed chase. Oh, then tried to steal a truck, engaged in a high-speed chase going up to 130 miles per hour, was captured uh, he said to the police when he was captured that uh, his plan had been to kill his ex-girlfriend. And if he couldn't do that, he was going to kill her sister in a nearby town. He'd also been in jail for beating his brother with the butt end of a sledgehammer and for trying to taser his wife. Okay. So here is this guy who is now on the lam with this woman. Okay, I mean, but is he, is he hot? No. Well, I mean, I got to tell you, so, you know, there are, we were, I'm not even going to say who we were looking at yesterday and thought like he's kind of hot in a weird way because we actually can't go there. We okay. just can't. We Let's can't do it. Not yet. We're not brave enough yet. But um, I, 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 I don't even think of it in terms like that as someone who has, uh, I have interviewed death row prisoners. I've interviewed prisoners. I have interviewed more sociopaths than I have fingers and toes. You know, you know how this happens. I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty obvious, and I think even to someone who hasn't studied this stuff, you know, good book to read for everybody. It's called The Sociopath Next Door, which is really, really breaks down how this stuff works. But this guy, obviously, whether he manipulated her into thinking they actually have a relationship or her needs kind of meshed with his that she thought she was – they had a relationship. Maybe he was, like, misunderstood, whatever. All I can say is the chances of this ending well are zero to none. And I also really want to interview her. So you should. I, I mean, if I can, I mean, let's see. You know, unfortunately, they are apparently, uh, they are they have a bunch of weapons with them. You asked last time, a service revolver. Mm -hmm. I think she has that. But there's also, they could even have, they have more weapons. So I don't know where they are. I mean, if they disappear forever, that would be, uh, it would be very unlikely, let's say. Plus, also, given his temperament, what he, that's, I think, what I'm kind of getting at with running down his crimes. Given, like, what this person is willing to do. You know, this shit hits the fan and it's going to. It has to be incredibly tense. I just don't see him being the stand-up guy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that it it will help build your case to interview her that we are empathic. You have interviewed more sociopaths than you have fingers and toes. I have dated more sociopaths than I have fingers and toes. <laughs> oh, just joking. Good. I've really only dated like one. I've only had one, one, one sociopath. One. Yeah. But uh, the rest of them were all on the spectrum. 
Wow. They were all like borderline. Like even they were like, am I a sociopath? And I was like, I don't know. It's possible. Um, it's really hard to tell between an asshole and a sociopath. Just well, you by don't, the way. This is the thing. You know, the, the one I've written about them, the thing is that people that are being hoodwinked, uh, which is a sweet word, word way to put it, um, by people don't assume it at first if you're an honest person. Like, I don't lie to people. I don't try to take people for rides. Yes, that's right. And so you don't assume someone else is doing it with you. And then when, like, you start catching, like, little things, like, for in my instance with this guy, it was very, very long time ago when my, my daughter was very young. Um, he'd tell me something and later on I'd say, oh, remember when you said, he's like, oh, 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 I never said that. God, isn't it sweet that you thought I said that? And I was like, the first time you hear it, you're like, what? And then like the third time you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Like you realize that they're just really weird. And then you realize how incredibly manipulative it is um, toward like what end? I, who the hell knows? I think it's just they can't help it. They're just they, they're missing uh, a component. This would be a good pivot to Amber Heard. I don't know if you want yeah. to go to yes. Roe yes. v. Wade no, let's, next. Let's, no, let's do this because I thought that story let, why don't you tee that up and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about why it, why it completely meshes with what I just said. Well, Amber Heard took the stand yesterday for the first time. She testified in the afternoon. And this was the first time we've seen her animated at all. I mean, you know, she's been sitting there in this sort of frosty, fragile doll state. And then now she's on the stand. And so we got a chance to, I guess meet her as an audience here. Um, she told us about her childhood in a small town called Manor outside of Austin. Uh, she was quite a precociously intelligent student. She was a scholarship kid to Catholic schools, but she dropped out at 16. She became an actress. She moved to Hollywood. Um, I think she was very much like, fuck this town. I'm never coming back. And she Can began I interrupt her- you one yeah, second? Just because she was 16, um, I've, I've, I've written about actors, that, Jenna Malone, that had to become emancipated, you know, in order to even work. Do you know, was there anything about her parents or anything in the piece? Or did she just dip and everyone's like, fine, do what you want. And then she turned 18 and whatever. You know, I don't know. That's a great, that's a great okay. story. Just, just uh, I mean, a great question. I actually discovered that my old boss at the Austin Chronicle called me over the weekend and he knows her first agent. Um, and so, and we were having a long, tying, tangled conversation about that character. You know, when you go back to 70s and eight, I guess this is 80s and 90s Austin, uh, it's a, it's kind of a wild time. And, and that guy whose name is Lewis Black, he just, he knew all those characters. So I, I will find out more about that. That's fine. That's fine. But I don't know. Um, she, you know, is, is married or, or she has a girlfriend. I can't remember if she's married or has a girlfriend. When she gets cast in a movie called The Rum Diary, which is about the life of Hunter S. Thompson, who has died at this point, but it's being made by his friend and the great fan of his work, Johnny Depp. They have a, a very intense mutual attraction through poetry and music and they like the same things and they're both sort of oddballs in the world and he's married at the time to Vanessa Paradis and uh Paradis and I don't have... think they were ever married FYI just to, they have kids okay. I don't think they actually married just thank you no and so she has this girlfriend and but they have incredible sparks and it's interesting because he told this story like I mean I found it very compelling he he told a story that they were doing a kiss 
uh, and it was just magnetic and it was unlike anything he'd ever experienced. This was a kiss on camera. And it was sort of like this mutual transcendent attraction that begins their relationship while they're both attached to someone else. Well, she told this story differently. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it, it was a little bit more like, I mean, she sort of framed it like she wasn't interested in him and he was pursuing her and this sort of happened to her. Like he slipped her the tongue during an on-camera shoot. That's really inappropriate. Uh, she went to his trailer at one point and brought a bottle of wine and he like pushed her on the bed sofa and was like, yum, and lifted up the back of her skirt. And she just sort of played like, ha ha ha, this is funny. Um, th the way that she made it sound was like, this was just happening to her. Um, it's interesting. I obviously, I don't know the, the truth of this. I will tell you that her stories reminded me a lot of some of the cheerleader stories because I did a podcast on the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. One of the dynamics you see in those stories, we didn't include many of these in the podcast, but that the players would be sniffing around. The players have so much more power and money than the cheerleaders and they would get their phone numbers and they would pursue them and they would send them gifts. And the cheerleaders, meanwhile, are like, I'm going to get kicked off the squad if, you if anybody finds out. So it was a really interesting balance where they like, maybe like the attention, maybe didn't, but they didn't know, like trying to be nice. And at the same time, the guy is just like trampling all over all sorts of like codes of conduct, like getting her number from their trainer. Anyway, Johnny sends Amber like a guitar, like a vintage guitar. And the girlfriend intercepts it and is like, what is this? And she's like, oh, send it back. So the perception that you have in the beginning is like, she's not interested in this. Johnny Depp is pursuing her and sort of uh, throwing lavish gifts in her lap. Um, but in the 2011 Rum Diary press tour, that's two years after they filmed the movie, uh, they're both separated or for no longer seeing their partners and they start to date. And it's a whirlwind romance and it uh, is passionate. <clears throat> it's always marked by its passion. Um, but, it, but it goes bad in her telling fairly quickly. And the first time we see this happen is when they're sitting on the couch and she asks about a tattoo. Uh, that is a tattoo that says, why no forever? Now, if you know anything about Johnny Depp uh, from the past, you know that this used to say Winona forever. When Winona Ryder being one of his high profile girlfriends in the 90s. But when they broke up, he changed that to why no forever. Uh, which he always thought was really funny, I think is really tragic. That's whatever. And she asked, what does that mean? Because she can't read it. It's kind of muddled. And something in him snaps and he slaps her and <laughs> out of nowhere. And she laughs because she doesn't know what else to do. And he slaps her again. And this is told with a lot of drama in her voice. You know, she has been very very flat, um, non-emotive as a witness. She is now extremely emotive on the witness stand. One of the things that was noticed by multiple people in the YouTube, com YouTube comments that I read was that she does not actually cry. There are no tears. There is a lot of sounding like you're telling story like that. And she's looking a lot 
at the jury. This was also noticed by multiple people. She is directing the story largely. Much of her testimony is directed to the jury, which is something that Johnny Depp didn't do. Um, no, he, he looked at the attorney that was questioning him. Yes. She looked at the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first incident. She goes on to tell stories about, for instance, the two of them doing MDMA in the desert at one point. There's a woman that is a little bit like flirty. You know, MDMA is like the love drug, right? And this woman kind of like leans into Amber and touches her. And again, Johnny snaps. Says, you know, hey, what the fuck are you doing touching my girl? And, oh, yeah, because that sounds like what would happen. But, yeah. And then takes her wrist and says, like, you know, I could snap this. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it it was... It's hard. What's interesting about this portrayal of Johnny Depp, uh, it's not unthinkable given the explosions of rage that we've seen in him when he's hitting kitchen cabinets and, you know, going crazy in like the rage room of an empty room. And you could argue whether that's you know, release or whether that's ominous. And that is something people. that was reported on the stand. The well, there's room. also a video of it. Like, okay. There's video okay. of him just like completely losing his shit. Okay. Um, and the text messages that um, can be quite violent and colorful in their language. So it's not unthinkable, but what is so hard to square. And so she hasn't been cross-examined yet. So this is just okay. her testimony. So... We don't know what the cross-examination is going to bring out. But it's very hard to square this with the audio in which she very directly says, like, I didn't, you know, like he's saying, you hit, punched me. And she's like, I did not punch you. I did not fucking deck you. I fucking was hitting you. You know, I, you know, I, that's the difference between you and me. You're a fucking baby. You're such a baby. Grow the fuck up. And it's like, okay, well... If he indeed was somebody that hit her and struck her out of nowhere and had these flashes of rage, why, why, like, why is she calling him a baby? Why, why is that happening? I'm not saying that's irrefutable proof. I'm telling you that's very hard to square. I'm just going to make a few little comments. First of all, I knew the Wino Forever story. I think anybody that is any sort of student of culture for the past however many years, and certainly if she was married to him or dating him, she may have run into that. The idea that just, just it doesn't, there's certain behaviors that don't make any sense, right? So you would see this tattoo and she would ask about it, like sweetly, curiously, like she didn't know. Uh, okay, it's possible. She didn't know. Um, but his reaction would be to hit her. Like this is, there's no, there's well, no so funny parody that there. That's, but that's her behavior as described by her friends. So like the woman, I talked about this last time, this woman that she was shopping with and then says Amber struck her out of nowhere. Like that is. So it's what a, she does. It means we it's what she people, does. Right. And then the second one is like, they're in the desert on a love drug, MDMA. I don't. I wouldn't know what it did, but you're telling me, okay, it's a love drug. And they're there, and a woman is sort of sweetly making a play. Uh, having met a few men in my life, the idea that that would enrage them so much that they would grab 
my wrist and say I'm going to break your wrist. Is this makes absolutely no sense? Right, that no is true. Like every in the human most spectrum, guys that I've dated okay? are like are like, okay, how can I advance this to the next? <laughs> well, there would like, be like, that. How can I make this happen faster? I mean, had it been, but, but uh, will I? I will say. So she had been involved with women before. No, I know. And he found that threatening, uh, according to her. And so the one part of her testimony that I found actually quite credible was his possessiveness and crazy jealousy. And, you know, interestingly enough, Jennifer Grey, one of his early girlfriends, is putting out a memoir around this time. And it also describes his possessive behavior. And so, you know, you have to remember that this is somebody who is operating from this like abusive childhood and love deficit in the, in the case of Johnny Depp. And he also has started his relationship with Amber Heard on camera. So his mind is going to constantly go to like, when else is she going to do that with somebody else she's acting with? So he becomes deeply threatened by her acting career. Um, and he also becomes very dismissive of her what you called in a previous episode ta-ta dresses. So she describes getting, you know, dressed up for a red carpet event. She is like, I felt that I looked really beautiful. And he's just like kind of disdainful and is like, if you're going to wear that kid, like that's what you're going to be known for. And, you know, this is an interesting tension that is worth unpacking a little bit more. But I just, I guess I want to say that I have known many beautiful women that have had deep relationships with men that wanted to date those women because they were the most beautiful women in the room and then were devoured by jealousy because other men were constantly hitting on those women. And a lot of it would get enacted through, are you really going to wear this like like now that you're with me so this is men's sexual possessiveness is so fascinating to me and you know a lot of guys have said to me you know I don't really like it when my girlfriend dresses really sexy and that is really uncomfortable in the modern imagination I mean this is an idea that like for instance orthodox Judaism understands and sort of creates a whole structure around which is that your your sexuality and your body is really for your 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 husband, your partner. That's a sacred part of marriage. But we live in this like sexualized society of egalitarian ideals. So this the idea is like, well, I'm not dressing sexy for other men. I'm dressing sexy for myself because yeah, I feel really beautiful. Yeah. And you know that can alternately be like some men can feel really proud of that. Like, look at my hot girlfriend in her ta-ta dress. And then it meant some men can be really distra- dis- 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 disgusted um, and frustrated by that. Can I, if I want to just take this thread for a minute and pull on it for a little bit. So, you know, there's a, there's a billion ways you can walk into the world um, with the way you're presenting yourself. You can do it to be manipulative. You can do it because I really need to attract people. You can do it because you just feel really great. Like you're walking out and you're feeling good. And what does this, what does this, what does this create? Well, you see people and there are these conscious and unconscious exchanges, whether it's like, Hey, you look great today, or you're just talking at a party and everything just sort of like thrums. Right. So I had this conversation about with, about plastic surgery with a few people. It's like, 
So let's say I'm sitting here with you or I'm sitting with someone at a party. I have I happen to have a big eyes and expressive face and I'm giving off signals with that and you're giving me back signals and maybe we're going to create something. We're going to create a party or a book or a podcast or whatever because we're able to exchange all this information that I'm just doing almost unconsciously with my face or my hands or whatever. If I had plastic surgery and or Botox and my 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 forehead couldn't work anymore, or my eyes were stretched to the point where you couldn't read it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get the same information from me. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not going to actually be able, because I'm not, you're going to say something like, and I'm like, why isn't Nancy expressing herself? Like, I thought that was a really funny joke, or I thought, well, I might be feeling it, but I can't give it off anymore. Um, isn't it interesting is- that actresses whose lifeblood is expression and micro-expression are yeah, often but- the ones that are using uh, Botox the most. Yeah. And then I always feel bad like for like babies. Babies have to read you. I mean, it's one of the big arguments during the um during the pandemic and masks. It's like if little children can't see your face, yeah, they're gonna feel really freaking insecure because they need to, and also like how are they going to start learning how to read how we communicate with each other? Anyway, that's a bit of a tangent to say, like, you know, if I get dressed and wear something cute, I'm doing it because it feels great. And I I mean, I did have a, a boyfriend a million years ago when I was a teenager, the horrible one that kicked me in the eyes, uh, who was psychotic. And so, you know, he didn't want me to look nice. But never since. I don't think I've ever had that experience since then where somebody was like, are you really going to wear that? I mean, they might I've say that not if there's like that a rip in it or something, but I've no, had, I've not, not had at that all. experience either. But I've had a number of friends tell me that story. Uh, well, number, that's unfortunate. This is now I'm over-exaggerating. It's like three to five. Okay, but like, well, that's enough. And And... And I've and I've heard from guys, you know, who are talking honestly, express real ambivalence around wow. girlfriends that you know show like post really sexy selfies on Instagram. Well, that's a, okay. That's I mean, it a, is a little bit strange, right? Well, that's a different thing. I'm going to put just for my part of this. I'll sew it up just by saying. You know, you want to go out into the world and sort of like give the world as much as you can. And that doesn't mean I'm going to show you my titties. I mean, for somebody it might, but just in me. general, like, yeah, for just in general, you want to, you want to make the, the world and everything move as quickly as you can with as much like goodness and beauty and you bring it out there. And if that means I want to look lovely at a party because everything kind of, we, we make more stuff, we make more pie because of that, then, then you should. And I think people that are secure in themselves understand that. And it's, it's not a threat, but I, you know, I, I get that people get jealous. For me, I, I never, ever, ever experience jealousy anymore. It just is gone. I, I talked to my daughter about this and she's like, that's cool, mom. I was like, I don't know what happened. It just it just disappeared a while ago. Now I see something awesome and I'm like, oh my God, that's awesome. Some beautiful person or someone sells a book for a lot of money. And I'm like, that's fantastic. Mine's so. mostly gone. Um, it was so white hot in my high school and early adulthood. I mean, just absolutely blinding. And it's really mostly gone. I I have it a little bit around professional stuff. Like we were joking uh, in the last pod about um, how old were you when you wrote that John Wayne Gacy piece? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like it'll, it'll get activated a little bit. But like, I yeah, I don't have huge jealousy. I mean, like, I don't know. There's a, I don't know. I have a little right. bit of it. All right. So how are we going to how are we going to work our way into the story of the day? I got a couple of ideas, but uh one I thought about um 
the uh, Ruth sent us kind of thing, but I, maybe we'll wait on that. We'll wait on well, that. Just well, to, let me ask you um, a question, Nancy. Yeah. One yep. of the things that we've talked about is that journalists' job is to relay information in a calm manner. And the right. idea should be to stay calm. And so I just want to ask you, how are we doing in the wake of a leak on potentially Roe v. Wade being overturned? Well, if we're using the royal we, not very well at all. But if we're using the particular we, I think some of us are trying to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to point out a few people. Um, Caitlin Flanagan, whose essays I included in a, in a piece I wrote yesterday over on Paloma Media. That um, essay who on abortion really, is unbelievably good. Well, there there are two, and I'm going to link them both here in the show notes. Um, but the one that really, I mean, the first one is just so profoundly moving. But the second one is she she's quoting um, uh, Bill Clinton when he was saying that uh, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Um, which is uh, which is an opinion I agree with. I mean, I thought not that it's Clinton that inspired me to think this, but um, I I feel that way extremely strongly. Um, it should be safe, it should be legal, and it should be rare. And the idea that you would espouse that, to my understanding, makes you in some quarters um, some pro um, you know pro abortion quarters or uh, feminist quarters makes you sort of on the wrong side. Um, you have to be, in order to be on apparently their good side, you have to, I mean, I actually saw a bumper sticker that said abortion is a sacrament. And I'm like, you know, wow. it's actually- Wow. Real, it's actually really not. Um, and I, I think, I think that part of the reason why people fight so hard to say like my body, my choice, no matter what, you know, get your laws off my body. I can do it whenever I want. And da, da. and I think one of the reasons why people fight so very hard for that, and and there's like a commensurate amount of, to use your word, passion, not a word I use very often, is because in fact, abortion is such a traumatic thing to the psyche, to the body, to the emotions that. To actually address it in that manner is just way, way too hard. So it is just, it's like, you know what? This is something we do and get out of our, you're not even allowed to have an opinion of it if you don't have a uterus, which is fucking bullshit because we're, let me, let me finish there. We, we, we can have an opinion on anything we want. And in fact, 50% of the, the world is male. And in fact, if you were not engaged with men and we're not talking about Rape and incest, okay? Because I know that this happens, and this is absolutely fucking terrible, as is the horror of an ectopic pregnancy. Yes, there are reasons when abortion, you have to make that safe. Most abortions, that's that's not how it works with most abortions. And in those cases, you had sex, or a woman had sex with a man. So to say that he has nothing to say with what happens is like, why would you not want, why would you not want the input of <laughs> the sex that actually makes this happen. I'm going to, I'll say one more thing because it, I think it relates to it. I have, I've had two very good friends in my life, each of whom, one of whom had, I think nine abortions and the other had five or six and never once did it, it really was to them. It was like emptying the dishwasher, like, you know, okay, I got myself knocked up again, boom, done. And I thought, 
I think, and I look, people are going to tell me I'm wrong. I did not, I've never had an abortion. I have had one baby and she means the world to me. And I, you know, it was very, it's the most important thing that's ever happened in my life and that ever will happen in my life. And that's not why I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not stumping for people to keep children. They can do what they want. But I think the idea that it does not exact a cost on the woman I don't think that's actually possible. And I think that's maybe too hard to address. And so instead, people just set up their camps where it's completely 100% pro-life or it's completely 100% pro-choice. And we can't walk in that middle area because that's where all the undetonated bombs are. And it's too fucking scary. Okay. I'm just going to cancel you right now. Yeah, fine. I can't. I cancel you. Bye, I cancel Sarah. you, Nancy Rommelman. It's been awesome. I cancel you, and I love you. <laughs> um, I want to speak with a little more. Uh, I want to tug on the thread of this idea of its trauma a little bit later. I want to okay. put a pin in that and come back to it because actually, only one of us in this in this conversation has had an abortion and you just admitted that it was not you. So, um, I want to talk about that, but I want to tell you a little bit about the history of Roe v. Wade first. Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. Because I think this is incredibly important because we're, it, 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 as we said yesterday, it's like, well, let's see what actually created this. And is it, did they do the law properly? And apparently you think that they might not have. So, uh, you know, I, think that they might not have, and so does Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and so do a lot of legal scholars. Roe v. Wade originated in Dallas. Um, There was a woman named Linda Coffey. She's kind of been lost to history. But she was a, she went to Woodrow Wilson here in my neighborhood, and she was at, uh, in the SMU library. She'd gone to UT Law, but she was the SMU library, and she was reading about a case in California, and, you know, it's too complicated, but she starts to think like, oh, could we do something like this in Texas? Meaning that uh, they used the case of a woman that was seeking a, an abortion to overturn uh, an outdated law. Uh, she needed a pregnant woman. She had a friend that had a friend that knew a woman named Norma McGorvey, a very troubled woman from a very abusive home, also here in Dallas. They meet at a coffee, I'm sorry, not a coffee shop. It's an Italian restaurant on uh, Mockingbird Lane. This is about a mile away from where I live. It's right next door to the Walgreens um, that I go to all the time. And she, in the intervening months, Linda Coffey has made friends with another UT Law alum, a very precocious student named Sarah Weddington. Sarah, uh, Linda is, you know, a little bit dour. She's from a Baptist family. She's gay, but nobody knows it. Sarah is uh, more dynamic. She had an abortion herself. Um, She went to college at, she went to law school at 19. Um, So Sarah decides to join forces and they're going to take this all as far as they can. Um, Norma McGorvey is five months pregnant. Uh, One of the things she resents about this story is that she did not know Sarah Weddington had gotten an abortion. Um, Sarah Weddington did not tell her where she could get an abortion, which is all 
Norma McGorvey wanted. Um, they needed her to stay pregnant. Uh, now, five months is pretty late, but Sarah Weddington had gone to Mexico. Um, she did not share that information with Norma McGorvey, who later was very upset about this in her own memoir. The case pretty quickly goes up to the Supreme Court. Um, Sarah Weddington is the one that argues it, even though Linda Coffey was really the one that had written the original briefing and argued it. But Sarah's got like the goods for the audience. You know, she's very pretty. She's 26 years old. I mean, you have to understand all the justices are men. Uh, the, you know, just looking for the women's bathroom in the Supreme Court is very difficult. They have to go down two flights of stairs. I mean, this is just really, I think she's still the youngest woman to argue in front of the Supreme Court at 26. When they created this, you know, Linda Coffey is very interesting talking about how they, you know, what, how are they going to find that this is in the Constitution? Well, you know, they actually found six different amendments that it could have fallen under. Linda Coffey says, you know, she really just wanted to call it sort of like common sense. Yeah. Um, you know, because this is this is a place where where public opinion has largely shifted. Like we basically want this to be legal and we're trying to find some place for it in the Constitution. And so they argue it. And, you know, it takes about a year to get the the response back. And it's Justice Blackman who 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 folds it under the 14th Amendment, the, the right to privacy. Mm-hmm. And he's also the one that draws the line at viability which is 24 weeks at the time, which is, it, it's, it's, this is the, this is the part that I think people don't understand. That is a much later line in the sand than most countries. I mean, yes, abortion is available in many other countries in the world, but my God, the line is almost always around 12 or 15 weeks. Yeah. And part of what we've been in the courts about and, and th- has been so contentious has been this line of viability. And by the way, the line of viability keeps going back because we keep redefining that and technology changes it. Do you and think so, if Blackman, sorry, do you think if Blackman had said, okay, 16 weeks, which is uh, four, four months, if he'd said that, do you think it would have been as contested? I, I don't know, but it's hard for me to believe that it would be um, because... That is where, when you poll people, you know, often cited is that most people want abortion to be legal. That is true. However, that number dips beyond 15 weeks. Yes. 15, 16 weeks is where people are comfortable. After that, this this second trimester and third trimester abortion, people are really uncomfortable, including the doctors that have performed abortions themselves. You know, Judge Alito, who wrote this leaked opinion, has performed abortions. He has discussed his discomfort with having done them. And this is not unique. You know, there is, I'm going to blank on her name. The book is called Violation. And the author is Sally, and I forget, but she was a nurse in an abortion clinic. And it's an absolutely stunning story that is so real. It's 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 very very painful. It could have been it could have been if James O'Keefe got his hands on that. Uh, Hoskins, Sally Hoskins, Sally. I'm not going to remember her. Hawkins. That's an actress. Um. So, you know, so the 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 legal. And by the way, Sally, t- Sally, 
Sally Tisdale? Tisdale. Sally yes. Tisdale. Sally I've met Tisdale. her. Yeah, yeah. I've met her. She's S-A-L-L-I-E. a very good writer. S-A-L-L-I-E. She's a fucking awesome writer. Yeah. So She lives in Portland. She is, she is something else. And, um, you know, this idea that abortion is, you know, it is the, you know, one of the most common procedures, but to equate it with like getting your teeth cleaned or, you know, g- getting a cavity filled or whatever. I, ju- I just don't even, that is so morally and intellectually dishonest because it's very different because we're talking about the d- potential for a human life and where that life begins is deep business of morality, religion, each culture defines it differently. The idea that any of this is settled law is absolutely insane. Um, I think that we were going to argue about this either way. You know, I, I tweeted this week about John Ronson's Things Fell Apart. I really can't say enough how important I think that podcast is. One reason it was important this week is that the first episode describes what he sort of positions as the first plunk, the per- first pebble in the pond of the culture war. Um, and what will be surprising to people is how sort of random it is. Like there's this guy and he's does a movie called How Should We Then Live? And his son is a teenage father and he in, inserts something about abortion and it's got a thousand dolls. That's why the episode is named that. And nobody's really paying attention to that part of the story because evangelicals don't give a crap about abortion. In fact, we'll, um, Wally Criswell, who's a really big Baptist leader from Dallas, you know, they, they try to get him on board for this. And he's sort of like, why would I care about whether or not a woman has a baby? He doesn't, it doesn't make sense to him. This was a Catholic concern. It's not a fundamental religious concern. It became one through the, um, there were some articles written about a second story a second movie that was done about abortion that nobody saw, but there were some inflammatory media reports. Feminists show up, they start protesting, and then the the conservatives show up to protest to the feminists. See, I often think, like for instance, uh, I saw a tweet to this week that said something like a half. It was by an author, very well respected one. And it said, I have to get out of this country because we hate women so much. And I was like, okay. Um, said the best-selling author whose book was read by the president of the United States. But okay. Okay. Whenever, sorry, I'm going to just interject. Whenever yeah. whenever I hear um, a woman, I guess men make that claim too, that that men hate women, I'm, I just want to say, have you ever listened to music? Have you oh ever God. listened to songs that like nine out of 10 songs by men is how much they love women? Like, what do you think? That's all a big, it's all a big show. It's all a big act to pretend and to like lull you into the fact of thinking that you're loved. Well, we could argue about whether or not the culture hates women, but I will tell you that women hate themselves. And I will tell you that women are somewhat addicted to the idea of the culture hating them. Oh, for sure. Because yes, because the, the, it, it, it's like this sort of agglomeration of, of, of power. I told you yesterday, and we had a little conversation about this last night, um, Matt Welch and I did. I was a kid. I was like a teenager, and I was too young to know that it was like kind of a trope or a punchline. But somebody said, 
What do women want? Question, what do women want? Answer, their way. That's and, true. Uh, and, uh, and that's so true with everybody. But I mean, but I, I guess it's especially true know, with women. I, you know women, what? men want things to be easy. They just want things to be easy. Happy wife, happy life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so let me just quickly go through, uh, you could, you could do, I actually, the reason I know a lot about this is because I contemplated doing a narrative podcast series on Roe v. Wade built around the um, three women at its center. This case really ruined each of their lives in different ways. At the very least, it warped their lives profoundly. Um, Linda Coffey learned about the Roe v. Wade decision in her car listening to like NPR and her name wasn't even mentioned. She was really erased from this story. Um, that's when she found out that Roe v. Wade had passed. By the way, um, Henry Wade, whose name is went down in history, was the district attorney in, in, in Dallas. He was liberal and he was pro-abortion, but his name was on the case because it was standard practice to put the district attorney's name uh, it's very interesting that uh, Jane Rowe, uh, Rowe was a typical, like Doe, right, was right. a typical women, sort of stand-in yep. for yep. women. That's, there's, you know, why they used that. Um, Norma McGorvey uh, eventually had a come-to-Jesus moment. She worked at a, she worked at a, at a abortion clinic in Dallas and Operation Rescue the anti-abortion clinic moved in across the street and they lured her across the street because Norma was a very sad story. I mean, she was really just always looking for love and attention. And the Operation Rescue people, you know, pulled her over to her side. She was baptized in a pool. And, God. you know, they had this whole line about like the poster child has jumped off the poster. You know, the feminists used to trot her out to all the events and never let her speak. There's this great footage of Gloria Allred kind of like like walking her around a rally and then sort of like being like, shut up, you know, because she was a real, she would fire from the hip and she would say these really like she was a real pistol. So, and so they didn't, they didn't want her talking. And she really didn't know that she supported abortion after the first trimester. This is something Linda Coffey has said on the record as well. She has wondered um, over the years if fetuses feel pain. She says that would really change the way that she felt about abortion. Um, she has also said that she would never respect a woman that used abortion as uh, birth control, that the idea that it was not done with gravity would make her sick. Um, again, she was a Baptist. She was um, came from a religious background. So this stuff weighed very heavy. You know, Sarah Weddington has the best story of all of them in the sense that she became a very lauded um, speaker, professor. She's buried in the, you know, state cemetery for heroes in in Austin. But um, my understanding is that her life was, a, you know, armored guards were around her all the time. You know, that, that, that the, the craziness that beset the country in the 90s over aboard the, the late 80s and 90s, you know, it, it really affected their their lives too. So um, she was living in a lot of fear. Um, you know, she was a hero to many, but she was a villain to many. And so I, I think it's worth just saying that 
the the fractures are hard won in a lot of ways. Um, Roe v. Wade was not divisive when it when it came out in seventy three. It became divisive uh, with the rise of the religious right. Um, again, Ronson's podcast gives a, a really great window into to partly how that happened. I I think I find it very fascinating that both sides seem unaware of the of the the either like the ambivalence on each of their sides, right? Like that there used to be Baptist preachers that were like, I don't really care. And that there is somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying, actually, uh, this is an example of pushing the law too fast. I mean, she calls it doctrinal limbs too swiftly shaped and it may prove unstable. She wanted to get it, um, you know, into like as an equal protection clause guaranteed by the constitution, which I think would have been a lot more solid. Uh, you wouldn't have, like, it is just shaky foundation. When I was 16, 17 years old, I had to, I was in a civics class and we had two people were chosen to argue Roe v. Wade, right? I was this, I was one of the only liberal kids in my class. They used to make fun of me and call me gay and, and, you know, just because I was liberal. And, um, and so I was chosen to argue the pro-choice side and I had to read the Roe v. Wade argument and and the the justice's decision. And I'm like 16 years old. I'm not I'm not a great student. And I was like, this is not very good. Like even at 16 or 17, I was like, this is a stretch. And you know, over the years, as I've talked to legal scholars, friends that are lawyers. I mean, they've all basically agreed. Depends on whether your interpretation of the Constitution is strict or, I forget the other version, um, artful, but uh, elastic. But, you know, this is um, this is playing a little bit fast and loose. And so this is part of what has gotten us into this 50-year tug of war. Well, there's no, as you know, in the culture war, there's there's very little room for nuance. You have to be very strong on one side or the other, even though I would wager that, you know, the bulk, the majority of people are not um, super, super um, committed to like only one side or the other. They want to have some nuance in here. And if that means, if that means making a better law, uh, whether you're leaving it to the states, which is very dicey, of course, um, or if you're making it federal, but make it make it a more sane and and watertight law. I I don't know the law exactly, um, but I wanted to just circle back to one thing that you said about um, um, the, the original case. I think that just listening to you talk, it very much makes me understand more why um, when you're talking about viability, why people that are you know, very pro-choice, why they would need to, um, why they would need to make that whole viability thing hazy and comfort people that had undergone um, abortions. It's mm -hmm. like, if you focus too much on the viability factor, it's too crushing. You can't do it. I mean, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm just projecting what I would think. But you I know, think that I you want to offer, sorry, you want to offer comfort to people. And sometimes that comfort is comes uh, in a political form. And it, it just means, no, we're going to stand with our, our sisters here. We're going to stand with people and tell them it's all, it's all okay. You have the right to do this. And let's, let's just focus on that and your, your feeling of, um, of being okay. And I, and I get that. Like I, I, 
I actually think that's a a good thing to do. Um, but again, I just go back to um, I go back to like I'm just so pro birth control. Oh my god, I'm just so so crazily pro that. Like I don't do a lot of volunteer work at all. Like practically none. Like maybe none right now. Um, but I would totally devote my time to making sure that people that needed birth control got it. I well, think birth control is important. really quite amazing. I mean, that is really the game changer. When the pill comes along in the 60s, that is really one of the major shifts of the 20th century is yeah. that you have unlatched sex from reproduction. And that's where the sexual revolution yeah. sort of, you know, comes from is this idea that you can have sex without consequences. And, you know, the question is, and it's a moral and physical question, it's like, can you really, can you actually have sex without consequences? And so one of the things, like maybe the consequences are, are invisible to you. Maybe they are hidden in your body. Maybe part of what we're trying to work through in Me Too and some of the clamor around it is the idea that like there actually were a lot of consequences that we weren't really able to name at the time. Um, I want to go back to this idea of trauma and abortion because I think it's I want to spend a little bit of time here. Yes. And I you mentioned the Bill Clinton line, you know, that abortion should be safe and rare. Legal and safe, rare. legal and rare, which I actually always really thought was a good line. And I was surprised to find people turn on it. Um, I, I understand the idea, but like. I think uh, the way I have always felt about it, you know, Planned Parenthood was the first political organization I can remember putting a bumper sticker on my binder when I was like 16. And it's funny because I was not a really politicized kid. I was like super into Martin Luther King for some reason. So I was like really into civil rights, but didn't have a lot of opportunities to protest about that. And um, but I was really into Planned Parenthood and I don't know why. Uh, I think maybe it's because like I was really into River Phoenix and he was really into like progressive <laughs> causes. I, I really do think this was like, I really think this was like partly like celebrity worship. But anyway, um, I remember when I turned 25, I had a, like I breathed a sigh of relief because I remember thinking if I get pregnant before 25, I will get an abortion. But if it's after 25, I will not. And so when I turned 25, I was like, oh, thank God, I'm never going to have an abortion, which is an interesting thing to do for a kid that thought abortions were fine. So what I'm saying there is that I think abortions are fine, but I really don't want to have one. Uh, so right sure. within that, you see the moral contradiction. Um, one of my favorites and my heroes, David Foster Wallace, wrote um, about abortion. Um, I sought it out because I wanted to know. Uh, what my dead hero thought about this thing that I had been thinking about a lot. And he comes to the conclusion that the only, the only moral position is to be both pro-choice and pro-life. Uh, uh, can I just say that is exactly how I feel? That's exactly how I feel. And that is a very tricky thing to walk in the world with. I mean, I, I don't have that many, that much opportunity to talk about abortion, but when I do, that's what I say. I'm both, I'm both of those things. So continue. So when I was 31, oh no, 30 years old, I had just 
been dumped by my boyfriend. I've been on uh, birth control and I was really as much of a lousy drunk as I was. I was always really, really good about taking my pill the same day time each day. Yeah. Always really, really good. And my boyfriend dumped me out of nowhere. And I mean, no, that's not true, Sarah. I mean, sorry. In the moment, I was like, this is out of nowhere. But like, now that I go back, like he'd been been building up for a long time. (laughs) We needed to, we needed to separate from each other. And I announced the next day that I was moving to New York and I was going to finally have the life that I wanted and live in New York, which I was always trying to convince him to move to. Um, I was very bereft. I am not a good heartbroken person. I drag my broken heart around like clattering tin cans. And I was that way for that week. I was drinking too much. I was not sleeping enough. I was wrapping up stuff at work because I had announced that I was leaving. I went to our old house. I took a day off work. And I went to our old house to pack up. And he had also, unbeknownst to me, taken the day off. He was in bed still sleeping. I had a very tender feeling toward him, watching him sleep. I got in bed with him. We had sex. It was particularly poignant because we did not have sex for a very long time before that. I think he had lost really sexual interest in me. And that was very, very, very painful. Um, so this felt very healing. And it was the day that I was moving out. And so it was sort of like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you kind of like come together as you're breaking apart. Yeah, it's tender. There's poignancy. It's like, especially like you know, my ex, my late ex, my daughter's father, she said to me, he's like, I remember the last time that we we made love. Like I actually, I don't actually remember it. Um, but, um, yeah, it's like this moment and you're, you're, it's going to now just be in its little, um, in Amber. It it, it felt like a really beautiful way to say goodbye after Mm -hmm. several ugly months of painful fights. And I remember leaving the house that day and being like, you know, (laughs) I'm out of my birth control pills. I I had run out of my birth control pills. But who needs them, right? But I didn't so, need them because I wasn't dating right. anybody. Right. And right. so I didn't go and refill them because I was just sort of like in a like state. And I was like, what are the chances I just got pregnant? And then I was like, I thought about getting plan B. And then I was like, there is no way that I would get pregnant. The only time that I have sex with my ex-boyfriend while I'm about to move to New York. Fast forward six weeks, I'm sitting on the (laughs) porch with my buddy Aaron, and he gets me a beer, and I'm like, this beer is rotten. Like, there's something wrong with this beer. It's disgusting. And so he opened up another beer, and I was like, this beer is disgusting too. And he he was drinking it, and he's like, there's nothing wrong with this beer. And the next morning, I vomited. Yep. And I was like, oh, my God. And so I went to Planned Parenthood. And I said, you know, I told her, like, you know, I did have unprotected sex, but um, I could only um, it was I was midway through my cycle. So I hadn't ovulated yet. And she was like, yeah, except that's not how the pill works. And I was like, what do you mean? 
And she was like, well, the pill suppresses ovulation. So as soon as you stop, it's going to release an egg. Yeah. The, so, egg, the egg's been waiting. Egg's like, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So my the, opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The egg has been in the wings. Like, <laughs> let me get out of here. It's my turn. Let me turn. <laughs> That's right. Ta-da. <laughs> and that Boy, she just- coincided with my tender yeah. lovemaking. Yeah. With my fucking ex-boyfriend. So I'm pregnant. And I call my best friend from college and we just sit on the phone together and it's like, okay. And I was like, I was like, I think this is a sign that he and I are supposed to get back together and I'm supposed to have a family. Cause I was really, I was always struggling with the fact that we drank so much and that I drank so much. And I knew that I had this sort of life of hedonism that felt off the beam of what a life of purpose and meaning would be. We were in our late 20s through much of that. We had a lot of expendable income. We just were sort of like drinking and eating too much and partying too hard. And I just sort of felt like there's something corrosive um, at the center of our lives. And if we had babies, I mean, this is in some ways, this is the most foolish thing. And in some ways, this is absolutely wise. Because really, like, as you know, from your own experience, like a a child is a profound is a profound thing. You you grow up pretty fast, and but I mean, and I I wanted to. So I my child was wanted. We wanted to have a baby, and, and it, you know, yeah, it, which which you know makes a difference. And I I just want to say that like I had wanted a baby ever since I was a baby. Like I yeah yeah yeah, yeah. used to have these like because I was so in love with my mom, yeah. so like like I. Would have. I remember one of the first stuffed animals I got was this seal that had a little baby velcroed inside. Yeah, and it was like so the baby would never leave the mommy. You know, like little kids are like obsessed with mommies and babies. Well, and that's I their, like that's the whole world. Oh, right? it's like, and I it's totally just... was. And then of course I grew up to be somebody that mostly babysat and then worked at daycares through uh, college and then was a nanny. <clears throat> in a lot of my early 20s. So this was something I had always wanted. It, it was very funny to me that a lot of my friends were like, I hate kids. And then they would have kids and they were like, okay, well, I only like my kid. And I was like, okay, cool. But I was not one of those people. I, I really deeply love children. So I really thought, okay, this is it. I'm 30 years old. This is our signal to have a family. So I went to my ex-boyfriend's house. He drank scotch while I drank seltzer. I told him this plan. He did not like this plan. He was already dating somebody else or at least making out with them. He left to have a cigarette and he came back and he said, you know, if you have this child, I will support you in any way I can, but we are not getting back together. And well, I got to give the guy, I mean, I'm not saying it's the, right or the wrong thing, but you know, he, at least he came 100%. back and said, here's, here's the deal. And like, and, and the number of, I've told this story a few times over the years, the number of guys that have said, oh my God, I would have lied in that moment. And then you would have been high and dry. Yeah. No, he's, it's, he's, cause he it's, would, they would have felt so like, this is the wrong thing to say. And so I will give it to this guy. Like he told me the truth, which I really deserved. Yep. And which I thank him for. And then you can go on and make the decision you choose to make. And so I sat there and I thought about like living with my mom, which I would have been doing, 
changing diapers while he went to the bar with his like new 23 year old girlfriend that he had been making out with. And I just was like, I don't, I, 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 it wasn't I, don't, the- I don't, it was selfish and it was smart and it was, it will, I will never have a release from what the morality of this is because I will never know what might have been. I wanted to have a child the right way. I wanted to have a child under the right circumstances with a partner that could support me. This is why uh, I'm sorry that I'm crying and I apologize if I'm making you or our listeners uncomfortable. I do cry all the time, so I don't want anybody to take this too seriously. However, it is true that I have a hard time talking honestly about this, which is one of the reasons why I have never written about it. It is in my second book because one of the things that, hold on, one of the things that happened um, is that I, I didn't have a kid. And I, by my 40s, I went through the last years of what would have been my opportunity to have one. And before everybody, like whenever I tell this story, I don't have to be crying. It is like watching people leap onto a, what do people leap onto? A fire? They don't leap uh, onto fires. Oh, to, oh, you mean to, they leap, they run to my rescue. They are like, mm-hmm. you could have, you could, you could adopt, you could have a foster child. Like it is very intolerable for men and women to see that I have pain and that I don't particularly want to do anything about that pain. It's just pain that I carry right now. This is not me being like, I don't want to fix it. I've gone to fertility specialists. I've looked, I've, I've talked to the good times folks at the IVF clinics. I know about sperm donation. I have plenty of guys that have offered their goods. I have one in particular I'm still working on. And you know, it's like, I I have thought so much about this. There is nothing you can tell me that I haven't thought about. But it is so uncomfortable for people to hear that I wanted a child and I didn't have one. And what they, like, but I also don't know, like, maybe I would have hated having a kid. What did I tell you when you told me that? That I could borrow yours. And share mine. Oh, and I cried. She's, she's, uh, you know, I, she, she actually finds these women without me. Uh, she has two or three in her life that are, she's met them through various circumstances and she's a very lovable kid and you'll meet her. And they're like, she, they're like, you know, I can kind of be your mom. I'm like, sure, I can share. I you know? always collected moms. I still collect mom. Well, you're kind of a mom to me. <laughs> How about sister? <laughs> Older sister. (laughs) Older sister. No, but Um, I mean, I mean that like throughout my life, I've had like a lot of my deepest attachments have been with with women who are slightly older than me, like maybe a year or two. I had an older cousin growing up that I worshipped. And so like, like my dynamic with you is like completely her because like I 
when I came back from your place in Chinatown, I was like, now I'm going to have a rice cooker like Nancy. And now I'm going to use coconut cream like Nancy. And now I do this like Nancy. And it's exactly how I used to come home from Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I was like, now my bangs look like this. And now I use this mascara. It's just totally like single white female creepyville. When I was buying a, my uh, my moisturizer at Trader Joe's yesterday, the little coconut cream, I was like, oh, yeah, now Sarah uses this too. Oh, I it's bought two smell. of those. I freaking so love I. them. They're it's really good. good. It's good. It's inexpensive. It smells super, super good. So, you know, life is long and families are complicated and love is uh, terrible and beautiful. And so I'm very comfortable with the idea that I don't, this story is unfinished. But let's go back to the part where I did have an abortion. And, you know, I think what's really interesting is that in the in the years after that abortion, I immediately moved to New York. And I really didn't like telling this story. This is, I, you know, I'm a confessional. I was a confessional by trade. I did not like sharing this story. This was not something I wanted to talk about. It was really too shape-shifting and private. When I became an editor at Salon, uh, we were I was often editing stories about abortion. And it was so funny because I would sometimes forget that I had had one. And my ex uh, remembered the date that we were supposed to have a kid because it had been given to us by the Texas. Whoa. So I had an abortion in Texas. So a couple things about it. I had to look at a sonogram. Uh, I had to get information, including that it might be twins. And he came from twins his mother was twins, and so that was very haunting to him. And we were given the date of the birth. And I immediately put it out of my mind, and he kept it. And every day on that date, he would email me. And at first, it was like, you know, we would cry over it. And then, like, that second or third year, I was like, fucker, get out of my life. I don't, I didn't think about this today. Why did you just drop in to say, I just said, stop. Yeah, no, I stop I don't, doing I don't. this. This is not. But, you know, it was interesting that he was mourning this, too. And I think this issue of, like, whether men have a say in this is so interesting. You know, if you want to look at something sad, look at, like, the Reddit pages for the men whose babies were aborted without their consent. And, you know, this is something that plays into sort of, like, family law courts, you know. And and it's it's really interesting. But, you know, if if men can't have a say over abortion then men shouldn't be responsible for children after they're born, which that's not good logic either. We are all in this together. We yeah. make a life together. We shepherd lives through together. This is not something that is just on women. So don't reinforce the idea that it's just on women. In fact, one of the more, you know, fiery feminist things that I will get fired up about is the way things like childcare and, and, you know, are shoved to the side as women's issues. No, they're not. No, no they're not. Childcare no. and education are not women's issues. No. So, you know, so my ex uh, did have some scar tissue around this. I just sort of like, forgot about it and it really wasn't until I, I I got sober I moved back to Dallas and I was talking with somebody that uh, became very close to me I eventually fell in love with him this was before then though when we would just go to lunch together and hang out and I, one night I told him the story about my abortion and he said you know what's so funny about that story Sarah he said you had no emotion and I've known you for years now 
And every time you tell, like if you tell a story about buying cereal at the store, You're there's crying. emotion in your voice. But you went completely flat. And I was like, oh. And it took me a while to realize that this was, you know, dissociation or repression or whatever soft term of denial you'd like to use to basically distance myself from a procedure that had changed my life. You know, if this is a life-saving procedure, which I think it almost certainly is, and we should never lose sight of its profound ability to free women up, we cannot distance ourselves from the reality that it is the ending of a potential life. That You cannot separate these things. This is what makes this such a goddamn bastard Gordian knot of a friggin' dilemma. And I will say that I have a lot of friends that have had abortions. They don't talk about it the way I do. I think that's fine. I don't know what their story is. Uh, I only can tell you mine. Mine is that the that being cut out of me will be something I carry for the rest of my days. It was fucking hell. 2017, 16, 17 years ago. And so I mark time this way. Um, and it's, it's, uh, I fucking, I fucking am glad that you're listening to this, but it's also like, I fucking hate putting this out there in the world because, you know, look, there's, there's a reason why people don't talk about this because the the right seizes on these kind of stories to tell a story of trauma. And I guess what I just want to fight really hard for is that it was also a story of freedom. I have been given a life that is unimaginable to most previous generations of women throughout human history. I moved to New York. I've traveled the world. I wrote a book with my own voice. I didn't even have to use a man's name. I used my own girl name. I have had great sex. Really. I am not bragging because what I believe is that it is available to any of us. And I have been given that. And I will never know what would have happened if I had made a different decision. And it lives with me all of my days. And I'm also like fucking grateful because you know, Gloria Steinem dedicated her memoir to the to the doctor that gave her an abortion. And that was very meaningful to a lot of women. Um I I just I there's a line in my Atlantic essay where I say like everybody says you want to be on the right side of history. Well, can you tell me where history lands on this so that I can choose accordingly? Because we do, we don't know. 
We don't know. And the thing that, so you're saying, you know, by choosing not to have a child, women <clears throat> can have their own life with the sweetness and the opportunity and what they, you know, had they had the child, their life would have been profoundly different. And we don't know what that mystery is. It's just We don't know if that mystery would have been terribly enriching or terribly complicating or terribly limiting. We don't know. Ambiguous loss is the name of this. Ambiguous say, loss. Sorry. You know what? I'm going to maybe even just like, just, just like enjoy the idea of what that mystery could have been. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's not like you did the right thing or the wrong thing or anything like that. That mystery exists. It still exists. It still exists. And you can, I don't know, like handle it sweetly, you know? Sorry, I'm having a little moment. Um, yeah, no, no, I think it's, This is just an incredibly, you know. I think we, you're right. We, we're all. You don't know what your life unlived is. I mean, look, like for years. You don't. And I was like, oh, I just, if Nick, if Nick had just married me and I could have had a child and like, it's like, and then I got together with Nick in 2019 and I was like, oh my God, he's a fucking disaster. He's such an alcoholic. He's such a mess. <laughs> Like he admits he's an alcoholic. I'm not saying anything he doesn't say about himself. And it's like, oh my God, I dodged a bullet. Like I, you don't know what the life unlived is. And in a society with so many choices and so many options, you just, you are haunted by it. And I think a lot of the, the kind of clamor, I don't know, it actually I actually don't know what all the clamor is, but if I if I had to guess, and this is just like armchair therapist, armchair daughter of a therapist, that should be my podcast. Um, it, it would <laughs> be a good name. It's a good name. It, it would be it, it would be that like there is such a defensive fire to defend that the choice that I made was the right one, That's and right. that it's the lady or the tiger. And I chose the lady and the other thing was the tiger. And if we go back to this other thing, other civilizations will have to choose the tiger. When in fact, it's just an unknowable data set. Because this is like The Unbearable Lightness of Being is one of my favorite books. And mm -hmm. Milan Kundera has a line that, you know, only having one life, you can never know whether it was the one you wanted to live or not. Like you do, you, you can never know if you made the right choices because you only have one life, one life to live, which is a soap opera. But uh, I'm sure he didn't <laughs> say it quite I, like I that. We're all doing this every day. Like, do I, you know, I'm going, I'm leaving on a trip next week. When I come back, do I go to Ukraine or do I not go to Ukraine? Like, do I go to San Francisco for this story or do I not? We don't know. And these things are going to dogleg us into, into something else. Um, actually, when you just said data set, I've got this whole thing I want to talk about, but I'm not going to do it because we're getting up on our time. But yeah. next time we're going to talk about the, uh, the the whole the whole data set pile on yesterday that we saw on 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 Twitter, in, and it again it had to do with abortion and it had to do with something that just tied into a sort of a sort of meanness and destruction that we've seen in the culture just reminded me very much of stuff that I saw in Portland. But I thought we might, if with your permission, and on a bit of a pop sweet rocks. note. Pop rocks. No, I have no pop rocks. But I will Damn. say um, we have some lemon bars in the fridge. And I made the lemon bars last night. Well, first of all, a lot of you guys know that um, the Fifth Column podcast today 
is the day they launch on Substack. So I'm raising my uh, my spark sparkling ice black raspberry zero sugar drink to them. They recorded here last night. We ate some lemon bars, and they are the reason, Sarah Hapala, that you and I know each other. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give a toast to to the fifth column guys: Michael Moynihan, Camille Foster, and Matt Welch. We love you guys. We love I love those do. guys. I have a crush on every one of those guys. Well, uh, cool. <laughs> anyway, I fed them last night, and um, we're looking forward to um, all the new stuff that they're doing on Substack. You should go over there and um, and sign up um, for their uh, for their new podcast. Uh, so they're like to them. a crush for every season, though. I really do think it's kind of like a boy band where, like, there's a girl for ev- there's there's like a boy for every one of you. They could you be we, we could really be like Tiger Beat, which Nick Gillespie used to be uh, one of the editors at, and we could no. have like a. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my, oh, God. oh, my God. I didn't know you that. Didn't. And now I need to talk to him about it for 100 hours. Well, you should. Uh, yeah. We could oh, have, my and, God. And we Nick Gillespie, like, we're going to talk. The magazine cover, we could put all their like faces in different hearts. Nick's too with that hair. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's too much. Can, um, can I tell you about a choice, though, that I just made recently that I think our listeners yes. might be interested in hearing yes, about? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I bought a ticket to Virginia. <sighs> yes, yeah, she did. For the to attend the last three days of the Depp Heard trial, we are going to be re- we are going to be recording remotely. You are going to be smoke them if you got them. Hits the road. That's right. Live from the courthouse in Virginia. Live from this giant line filled with Johnny Depp stands. Oh, you definitely are going to be reporting from there. We're going to get. I'm going to be with my people because it's going to be a bunch of nerdy girls, nerdy, sensitive, artsy girls. That grew up loving this man, and we're just all going to be grappling with whether or not he's really a terrible person. Because I am really, I did throw some shade on Amber Heard's testimony, but I just want to say, like, I, I am still keeping in my mind this idea that like Johnny Depp is a very complicated character, and I think it is very possible that he was an abuse, a, a victim of abuse, and also just a terrible, toxic boyfriend. In terms of the the nastiness and the drunkenness and, you know, the the drug abuse. I mean, like, when you are with a partner that is checked out all the time like that, that is very painful. Well, you're going to be there and I'm going to be in Texas. So we will do a nice uh, remote, uh, remote podcast. Um, thanks, everyone, for tuning in for this episode eight of Smoke If You Got Them. I'm not we'll crying anymore. I've let everybody know I'm doing well. I'm not crying okay. anymore. All right. Kisses to everyone. And to you, Sarah Hupla. Uh, Bye. I love you, Nancy Rommelman. <laughs>